0: Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Welcome to the first podcast from Sonic Cinema for 2020. And it's going to be a bit of a different one. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Oscars, but not necessarily... This Oscars, that discussion, I'll have that discussion as well as my absolute adoration and uh, geeking out over Parasite uh, next week shortly before the Oscars actually take place. Um, I want to, one of the things uh, I want to do today is we want to go back in time about 25 years to the Oscar race of the 1995 Oscars, the 1994 movie year where it was it was Forrest Gump versus Pulp Fiction and uh joining me in that discussion is the uh writer and editor of uh Death Ensemble he's been on the podcast before we focus on horror and we'll get back to horror later this year I know we've got a couple of ideas for uh some movies to discuss but um please welcome back to the podcast uh Phil Faso, Thank you very much for
1: joining me. Well, Brian it, is Brian, it is, always a pleasure. And I am very sick. So, I just want to let you know that if your audience is, uh, me to my voice, I would appreciate their sympathies, but we're going to roll through this. I'm also very happy for once not to be talking about R.
0: Yeah. Uh, we, we, well, I mean, certainly the, uh, Certainly, the horror movies we discussed uh, last time did not really. Uh, were, we're not necessarily cream of the crop, uh, needless to say. Certainly, c- certainly not Oscar material. That's for sure. Certainly not, not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, you know, and I, it was funny because of the fact that leading into our discussion here on this particular Oscar race, I don't even remember how it came up. Uh, what sort of the genesis of this idea that we would talk about this particular Oscar race uh, came up. Um, It might have had something to do with the fact that I know, other than 1999, which we devoted pretty much all of the podcast to last year, and will, to a certain extent, catch up with some uh, this year, 1994 is probably one of the more formative years of my movie-going life in the sense that it really it's it's a year and where i branched out from what i was usually used to watching at the time and started to get into more independent films, more watching movies on my own and just appreciating the art of filmmaking um on a bigger level than i had previous um the the thing that is really interesting about this particular year, and this particular Oscar race, I think, is that it sort of became. I remember vividly. It sort of becoming sort of a a a salvo in the culture wars, where you had the um, more conservative. Uh, you know, feel good movie of Force Gump versus the hipper uh more sort of progressive um challenger which was pulp fiction. And that's sort of-
1: Well it's funny that you mention it's funny that you mention um that you that uh that uh, I'm sorry that uh Force Gump would be more conservative because I distinctly remember reading, I was in college at the time at Stony Brook University, and I distinctly remember reading an article. I don't remember where it came from. I think it was at the, the Borders Books in Stony Brook. I distinctly remember reading an article in a newspaper saying that both Democrats and Republicans were trying to say that Forrest Gump mm-hmm. belonged to their party. Yeah. So Forrest Gump, according to the Republicans, was a bashing of the Republican stronghold. And as far as the Democrats, so Morris was the leader in democratic theory. Mm-hmm. So take that as you will. I thought that was really strange. I think that they were just trying to take the zeitgeist, what was popular in the zeitgeist, and say, hey, this this is something that we can link on to
0: Yeah. So No, I, I definitely think that's more in I, I think that's more of the case than anything. I mean, let's let's face it though, it wouldn't be the first time that a political party is sort of tried to co-opt a piece of pop culture that had ultimately, ultimately is saying something completely opposite of what that party stands for. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I just remember, you know, Ronald Reagan sort of co-opting born in the USA and conservatives really co-opting born in the USA, not necessarily seeing it as the indictment of the Vietnam war that it was. And, yes. <laughs> so I mean, it. Forrest Gump does sort of uh, have a place in that respect, I think. Um, I, I I feel like we talked. We were talking about Pulp Fiction. We were talking about Forrest Gump at some point last year, and that's how this discussion co- came up. I really we
1: were, sure. in fact. I, I don't I don't I don't remember how I came up on social media, and I can't remember exactly what the conversation was. I also remember my big thing at that time was I had posted on one of your you know, one of your posts on social media that I well not only can I not stand Forrest Gump I think it's a terrible movie but you know that basically Forrest Gump is this ridiculous ideal that could never really exist yeah and people latched onto that and said oh this is something to like Forrest Gump is physically crippled. Mm-hmm. He has a speech impediment. He's got, you know, obviously he's got um, learning issues. So he's got all that. And in that, he meets every president in his entire run there. Right? He manages to go to Vietnam and save people. He starts his own fishing company. He runs across the United States. With all these things, any one of those, oh, it's a ping-pong champion or what, yeah. any one of those things would be Extraordinary to do, yeah. For one human being, especially with all his handicaps, to do all of that, to expect him to do that is absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Now, now that goes back to the source material for Winston. Grew. I've never—I I don't think I've ever read the novel. I might have started it at one point. That cool. That Borders books back then was really good when I was at Storybook because you could go there and they had couches and stuff, and you could sit down and read books without buying them. Mm-hmm. And being a cheap college student back then in my early 20s, it was a great time just to sit down and read stuff that I couldn't afford to buy.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm an avid reader. But the thing was, this is like pre, well, pre, one, even that became really popular. But the thing is that basically you have this, you have this, it's just preposterous what Forrest Gump does in that movie. For any one human being to get all that done. And again, I understand that that was part of its popularity, that, and, of course, Tom Hanks. I'll probably get to him later. Yeah. But my my problem with it is that's more fantasy and has more ridiculous elements than a lot of the horror movies that I watch. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. No. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. No. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I mean, the that I I have heard. I've never read the Winston Group uh, novel either book either. But what I have heard is that it the movie diverts significantly from the book and in ways that kind of change the nature of the narrative in not necessarily the way that Winston Groom intended it to be um the the thing i i I think the thing that probably other than the fact that it was Tom Hanks coming off the Oscar win for Philadelphia in the lead role. I mean that was this was basically as popular as he had ever been by this point. Yes. I think that combined with the fact that this was essentially this was one of those films that essentially sort of lionized the baby boomer generation, I think, to a certain extent. In Oh, absolutely. That, you know, you have all of these significant things that happen. You have Vietnam like you said, all of the things that happen with Forrest in the movie. And you also have this essentially fortune cooker cookie wisdom in the movie where it's very simplistic, uh, sentimental uh, ideas and hopeful ideas that... I, I don't dislike the movie as much as you do, but I definitely my my opinion of the movie has significantly dropped over the years and it basically <clears throat> goes down to the fact that it exactly sort of like what you were talking about with the character of Force, where it's like he's he's mentally handicapped, he's he has learning disability to where he can't really process the information and yet he's essentially he's whisked away on this amazing life on accident. And let's be clear, it's like so much of this happens almost accidentally without him really being aware of what is happening, aware of the ideas that aware of anything that is really happening to him to a certain extent.
1: And that's another part of my problem with it as someone who, I have two degrees in English, and I said, like I said, I said earlier, I'm a lifelong reader. But one of my biggest problems with that is Forrest Gump is really a passive hero in that movie. Yes. He's not active so much as it's not that he's driving the stuff around him, it's that he just happens to be there for that stuff, yes. like you said. So again, I mean he just there's just so much going on there that it's just like, oh, Forrest happens to be here. Oh, Forrest, Forrest shows up here. Oh, Forrest is there, and now, now now he's in Vietnam. So he's in Vietnam, and he saves Colonel uh, the Lieutenant Dan, and Lieutenant Dan wants to die, and his legs get blown off. But you know, it's kind of like he just happened to be there. It's not like to, I, I really don't see him as this great hero. I see him as he's basically a good-hearted guy, and that's that's the one thing I can say about that character. Yeah. He's obviously very good hearted. He's not, he's got no malice in the system at all. You know, mm-hmm. he wants to help people. He wants to be good. You know, but again, he's not an agent of action. He's, hey, things are happening around
0: him. Yeah.
1: But he just happens to show up at that, that massive rally because Jenny's there. He's the with Jenny I think, at that massive rally in, in Washington. Yeah. You know, and then he bumps into the. Does he? Did, did he actually bump into the Black Panthers at one point during that? I don't yeah. remember.
0: Yeah. He does, right? Yeah.
1: So it's like, okay, so if he happens to show up at some of the biggest, biggest points in American history just because he was there. Yeah. You know? And that would be fine if that was, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I come from a world where, you know, I've been I've read literature basically worldwide from all over the world from every age. And your protagonist is supposed to drive the story. Your protagonist is not supposed to sit around while things happen around them. You know, so that's a massive problem in the actual storytelling there. Which is another reason, that, you know. And again, I think the popularity goes back to what you said that at that point, hey, my it's uh, nineteen ninety four, right? That movie came out. So, my mom would have been, she's born in 1950, my mom would have been like 44, my dad would have been almost 50. Yeah, so that's the whole thing, we, you know I'm looking at it, and I'm saying that my, my dad was in the army. He wasn't in Vietnam, but he was in the army in the 60s. My mom was at Woodstock in 1969 and all that. And to those that age, I mean, that, to, that for Forrest to go and do all he did, Certainly had to have a huge appeal to yeah. baby boomers at that point. They had to say to themselves, hey, look, here's a guy who speaks for us. Now, if I were a baby boomer, would I want Forrest speaking for me? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but I can see where that would generate his popularity as a character. You know, and as much as I much as much I can't stand that movie, I can't. I mean, I don't like the character, but I mean, Tom, Tom Hanks couldn't have done better with that character, you know?
0: Oh no, he he does do a really good job with the character he's given. Um, one of the things that I've really it's really struck to, struck me I think the last time I watched it a couple of years ago about Forrest Gump is that I I feel like so much there is one truly inspiring character in that movie and it's Lieutenant Dan. And oh, absolutely, because of the fact that. He has a genuine arc. I mean, he's somebody who. He feels like he's. De- by the time. When we first meet him, his destiny is to die on the battlefield. That is what he, his family has done and sacrificed for the country. And he feels like that is his destiny to do. And Force deprives him of that. And when we first see him without his legs, that is. That cynicism that bitterness is is going through him, and then, at a certain point, he realizes through Forrest, through you know being tripo captain with Forrest that no, this is not the way this is not the way to live, and he goes on a character arc that I think is really in- interesting. And would have made a more interesting movie. Um
1: And you know what? I think that um Gary Sinise does wonders with that character. Yes. Gary Sinise is spot on perfect. I mean, he mm. begrudgingly goes along with Forrest with the whole thing earlier on, and then you could tell as they spend more time together, he legitimately, legitimately starts to love Forrest, yeah. yeah. No, you but again, like you said, that that would have been a much more interesting character for me to follow. Yeah, and he is he has he has a much better arc than Forrest does because mm-hmm. Forrest doesn't really have an arc so much as Forrest has just an ascension. Yeah, you know, he just keeps keeps going and, going and going and going skyward. You know,
0: well, it's it's essentially it's essentially there's story, there. there's story A, there's plot point A, point B, point C, point D, point E, until you get to this point where you know you, you you have this framing device of him on the park on the bus you know bench waiting for the bus and that's basically where he's telling his story to different people and stuff like that and then you get to that point where it's like oh the reason he's on this this waiting for the bus is to see Jenny and you know he goes to see Jenny finds out she's got a son that it's supposedly his and oh by the way she has AIDS and they finally get together and um and then she dies. yeah and then she dies uh and it's one of those I mean and you know I that's that's one of the things that I know when uh I've talked about Reese well I've talked about the movie on Facebook the past couple of years it's like that's one of the things that just stands out to me is that i jenny is such a like it's such a it's not necessarily a terribly written character but it's it's terribly conceived because of the fact that it's essentially she you know she's she's punished for all of these being sort of this free carefree in a way she's every bit as carefree and you know lives life you know in her own way as force does, but she's punished where he succeeds
1: so here's the whole thing about that. that goes back to the moral code from the nineteen i think thirties on yeah where it back in back in the fifties specifically, if you had a woman who was a an um, evil character in a movie, basically it was written into the movie code that that character had to have her come up and to be punished somehow, yeah. So what, what you're doing is that's exactly what you're doing. Now, I feel that's terrible, and here's why. I love Jenny in that movie. She's not a very well-written character, like you said, but she lives,
0: Yeah,
1: you know? She's very emblematic of that character of that time, what that character would have done, gone out, had sex, gone to college, gone to rallies, those sorts of things. The kind of things that my mom, I'm sure, did back in the 70, you know, 60s and 70s yeah. when they were burning bras and those sorts of things. Jenny is an active agent in that movie. Now she's on the side a lot of the time. And Forrest of course keeps bumping into her everywhere because that's what Forrest does life. Yeah. But the thing is that, you know, so here's where I'm really offended by, by that script. Okay. So, so here's where I'm just, and this is one more reason for me to read my burning hatred for this movie. Basically Jenny is, like you said, she, she sees Forrest finally and she says, Hey, I have your kid here and I also have AIDS, right? Yeah. So, in one fell swoop, she manages because this is supposed to be the great love story of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be the great love story that I don't think ever should have happened because these are two people going on two separate rails the entire time, yeah. right? So, here is that, hey, you know what? I'm giving you your kid. To show that I love you because this is the love we always should have had. But because I pushed that off so long and I went and lived life without you, I'm now going to die of AIDS. Mm -hmm. That is morally reprehensible, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And I don't think, I, I don't think in this age, 25 years later, I don't think you'd be able to get away with that Oh no, in a movie. Not especially not one that right. is popular, especially one that is popular and starring the magnitude of Tom Hanks and all the other big actors, and that's like, and written by, well, uh, directed rather by Robert Zemeckis. Yeah. I don't think you ever would have been able to get away with that now. Oh no,
0: not at all. And I mean, I think that's where, that's where when Issa was sort of conservative earlier, that's what... One- It's the character of Jenny especially Especially in this movie what I am thinking about because of the fact that it's like you have Forrest on the one hand who listens to his mama, who loves his mama, who does what he's essentially supposed to do in life, and he succeeds, and then you have Jenny who was the, you know, like you said, bra burning, protesting, you know, hippie hippie girl who you know lived her own life and she's punished because she has aids and it's like that's where that's where i i sort of that's where the political underpinnings of this being a little bit more conservative come into play sure. even though if even though i mean you you can sort of understand what are sort of both both sides could say oh no this is this is this is speaking to me completely, and you know it's funny because of the fact that my mother was a baby boomer too, but I mean she's never really she never really cared for has cared for the movie that much sure
1: but you know so anyway, that was that was the one really well. I shouldn't say that was one of that was one of the really popular movies that year. And then I'm looking at right now best picture options that year. Yeah. So like you said, Forrest Gump obviously was the winner. I think that the indie darling that everyone would have hoped was going to win would have been Pulp Fiction. Yes. Yeah. Then you have Quiz Show, yeah. which is a Roger uh, another. And again, I don't think you could find five movies that were a lot more different than these. Oh no. You have Quiz Show. Yeah. You have another you have another movie that bombed at the time and now everybody in the world loves and that's the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And then you have I can't believe I'm gonna say this. Four <laughs> weddings and a funeral. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well and I remember the nomination for Four Weddings and a Funeral were just flooring people. It's like Where did that come from? Now, Grant, I mean, I think Four Wings and a Funeral is a very funny movie. Oh, it is, yeah. Is it it necessarily on the, you know, is it one of the best movies of the year? No, I wouldn't say so. But,
1: But here's the thing. If you want to put a comedy in there, right? Yeah. I'm looking right now at Best Director, you have Woody Allen for Bullets Over Broadway, and Bullets Over Broadway didn't get nominated. And the director of Four Weddings and a Funeral didn't get nominated. Yeah. So you'd think if you'd watch it, that was one of those... Remember what... <coughs> oh, excuse me. I think it was the 93 awards when they slipped in uh, the... The 93 or 94, a couple of years before this, when they put out the nominations, and all of a sudden one of the Best Picture nominations was The Fugitive.
0: Yeah, yeah that was the year
1: before. So this... I'm pretty sure that Four Weddings and a Funeral was, let's put one popular movie in here that has no chance to win so people who don't watch the will watch.
0: Yeah. I mean, even then, it's like, with Forrest, between Forge Gump and Pulp Fiction, I feel like you still would have had an audience. I still feel like you almost would have had the audience, even if it was kind of inevitable by that point that Forrest Gump was going to win, because, you know, Pulp Fiction, no, wasn't as... Although it was the second highest-grossing film of these five, and it made a hundred million dollars, it was a successful movie. But at the same time, it wasn't even near the juggernaut that Forrest Gump was. Forrest Gump was one of the highest-grossing movies of the year, and but yeah, and uh, Woody Allen, you know, being nominated—that was one of the—that was at that point where it Woody Allen almost it was. You could almost set your clock to it. Woody Allen getting a nomination for either directing or writing, and this particular yeah. year for *Boats Over Broadway* he happened to get both, um, deservingly because I really like *Boats Over Broadway*. It's arguably one of my favorite uh, Woody Allen films, if I have favorite Woody Allen films. Um, and it 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 did well because Diane Weist won the Oscar for her performance. You had Chad yes, Terry nominated for his terrific performance, and you also had Jennifer Tilly. And so it was a really well known well beloved uh movie by the Academy. So yeah, it is in that context, it is really surprising that they nominated Four Wings and a funeral over bullets over Broadway.
1: And again, like you said, Four Weddings and a Funeral is a really funny movie. I loved it when I saw it back in the '90s, but it's yeah. not the kind of thing that seems Oscar at all.
0: No, no, not at all. And it's funny because of the fact that it's like it's it's one of those movies where I think now I think you will if it if it was a movie that came out now, I almost feel like it probably would have had more of a chance. It probably would have gotten the screenplay nomination probably will have gotten nominated for hugh grant it probably will. well it did well richard curse did get the writing nomination for for wings and a funeral but <coughs> hugh grant probably would have been nominated it will have been the it, it would have been a movie that got some legs to it and probably been nominated and then it's like wow that's not as much an outlier as you would as it looks like now with that category with uh Forrest gum, Pulp Fiction quiz show, which granted, I haven't seen. Sure like Shank, years years or Shawshank, which I I just you know Shawshank. I mean that didn't become beloved until years later because no
1: yeah. So the academy was, was the academy was definitely ahead of the curve on that one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know it's like I I watched it again for the first time in a while. Shawshank. Uh, this past this past year, and I enjoy it. I I think it's a good movie. I it's not my favorite Deribount movie. Uh, I honestly my favorite Deribount movie is The Mist. Um, same here. <laughs> which I I think is tremendous. But at the same time, I I completely understand why the Academy went with it. It's funny watching looking at some of these nominees. Like there are still movies that were nominated for, like, the major awards that I really don't know that I ever ended up seeing.
1: Well, I've seen all five of the best pictures. I remember being very, very bored with Quiz Show. <laughs> um, I liked Four Weddings and a Funeral. Short Shank, like you said, I, I think it's got a reputation that's way overrated. I think it's a really good film. Yeah. Uh, but I read the actual, actually, I read, was part of his poor... That story and Stand By Me and two other stories come from a collection called, I think it's Four Seasons by Cedar King. Mm -hmm. And the the gimmick with that was three of the four were not traditional horror stories. There's no supernatural or anything like that. And Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption was the first story in that book. So back in the 80s, long before it ever became a movie, I read that story. And I remember being fascinated with the story. Mm -hmm. Um... But again, every time I watch a prison movie, I feel like I'm locked behind bars. Yeah. (laughs) You know? So it's not exactly a thriller for me. Uh, But certainly, uh, those are some very varied
0: nominations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, in looking at the acting categories, so Best Actor, I think the only one I haven't seen in that category is Madness of King George. I don't think I ever saw that movie. I've seen all of the other ones by this point. Uh, if I like, if I were voting for it, I probably would say Morgan Freeman or Paul Newman.
1: Um, oh, Paul Newman is great in Nobody's Fool. Yeah. That is such an underrated movie. And that's one of those ones. People remember Forrest Gump and people remember, you know, Shawshank and they remember Pulp Fiction now. Yeah. I think that's one of those ones that time kind of swept under the rug. And that is a shame because Paul Newman is just, just, it's a tour de force performance. It's just a regular guy in that movie, yeah. you know?
0: yeah. And, uh, I mean, there was terrific work in that movie in general because that was another movie where Bruce Willis was in a supporting role, if I remember correctly.
1: Yes, yes, he was. I was just about to mention that.
0: You had that in Pulp Fiction where it's like Bruce Willis is starting to show some acting chops, which we weren't necessarily, you know, sure they had by that point in his career.
1: Sure. Uh, Now, as far as actress goes... I I don't even remember Jessica Lyon being in a movie called Blue Sky, so I can't tell you anything about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think the only two movies of those, of that category that I've ever seen are Little Women, which is very good, admittedly, and The Client.
1: And which, again, is another, that's one of those, and that's, uh, what's the name of that author? I can't, John Grisham. Yeah. So he writes these potboiler boiler prose movies that get made in the books that get made into movies a lot of I remember that um what's his face? Tom Cruise, I think, was in the yeah. firm, right? Yeah. So he writes these and again, they're you know, they're thrillers and they're not you know, they're not great writing, they're fun stuff, you know. Yeah. But yeah, and Susan Sarandon was a acting chops to get nominated for the client, it just <laughs> sounded kind of weird, you know? Yeah, it is. Well and the thing and I've is- seen um God, I'm sorry. No,
0: that's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I, I don't even remember Tom and Viv. I have no idea what it's about. I don't remember hearing about that movie at all. And it's like, yeah. I mean, now I kind of, now I remember because of the fact that it was people like Jodie, Fo- that, Jodie Foster was playing a character that a lot of people were like, oh, well, I mean, she's, you know, that, that character is handicapped sort of in the same way that force gump is so it's like oh yeah maybe she'll get nominated maybe she'll win for that and it's like no it ended up being jessica lang who i yeah i don't think i've ever seen blue sky i i remember the title but i don't remember i don't remember ever watching the movie
1: by the way while you mentioned the whole thing with handicaps i do want to bring up that especially with the actor best actor category It became very en vogue for the best actor winner to be playing a character who was somehow handicapped physically or mentally or whatever. I remember back in 89, which would have been the 90 Academy Awards, when Daniel Day-Lewis won his first for My Left Foot. Yeah, Which is a guy who writes with his toes pretty much because he's handicapped. And uh, that was a very popular way to go for a while because it seemed like it seemed like hey I mean I have no acting skills whatsoever. I've never acted in anything. I can't say that I have ever um, taken an acting class. But I guess the thing for a while there with the Academy was, well, it must be incredibly challenging to play someone with some kind of handicap because that was definitely the way to go for a while there.
0: Oh yeah, well I mean it they and they make jokes about it in Bowfinger and uh Tropic Thunder as well. So I mean Oh, that's right they do. Because because before the year before Daniel DeLuz won for my left foot, that was the year Dustin Hoffman won for Rain Man.
1: Rain Man, yeah.
0: yeah. And it's like, yeah. And then I mean, even though he's playing blind, that's that's a few years later Al Pacino won for Al Pacino, right. yeah. And yeah, it's it's one it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, you're right, it was something that was sort of in vogue for actors, and, uh yeah, I mean, it basically became a punchline, you know, and, uh, yep. yeah, looking at the uh supporting actors, this is, I mean, this was, this was a really great category, actually. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, I, Grant, Martin Landau deserved to win. He was phenomenal in Ed Wood, but, I mean, if you've given it to Samuel L. Jackson or Even Sneeze, I don't think anybody would have argued with either one of those.
1: If you gave that award to anybody but Paul Schofield for playing the dad in Quisho, I think you wouldn't get an argument about that. that's a really loaded field. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, you have Sam Jackson, you have Chaz Famateri, as you mentioned earlier, Gary Sinise, who's probably the best role of his career. So he has some quality stuff. Yeah. I remember seeing something, some of one of the late night shows back in the day where someone was handicapping the Oscars. And he said it was like, oh, one, instead of two to one or three to one, it was like one to two. So it was like a lock that Martin Landau was going to win that oh, yeah. award because it was just his time. And again, you know, like all, I've, I've always loved Garland. Now he is particularly awesome. I will go see in that film.
0: Yeah, no, that was that was a tremendous film. I think I had seen Ed Wood by the time the Oscars had come on. So it's like I I knew how great he was. So it's like when he won, I wasn't surprised and I wasn't disappointed because of the fact that it was such a great performance. And, I mean, it is one of the best movies from that year. It's a shame that Ed Wood didn't catch on a little bit more than it did, because it could have it could've won a lot of these categories, like art direction, it should have been up sure. for cinematography, one for makeup as well. Um and supporting actress, uh, Diane Weiss was phenomenal in Bullets Over Broadway, but I mean honestly, so is Jennifer Tilley. In that movie.
1: That is one of those ones where you yeah, have two people from the same movie in the same category and it's like, well and that's one of those ones a lot of times where they cancel out each other, so I'm yeah. surprised that Diane Weast won.
0: Yeah.
1: But again, Diane Least has been a great actress for god knows how many years, you know, so it's good to see her there. Yeah, I can't complain about that. Yeah. And then uh, I mean I don't think that Uma Thurman was in Pulp Fiction enough. But then again, didn't Dame Judy Dench win for one movie where she was in for like 13 seconds or something like that a couple of yeah, years
0: ago? Yeah, Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, he, she, she won for Shakespeare in Love where she was in it for like 8 minutes or something like that as Queen Elizabeth. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, Uma Thurman is, and Uma Thurman is really good in Pulp Fiction, but at the same time, I mean, I don't know that I will have given her the Oscar for that yet. I mean, it's a really great role and she's Really great in it, but I I don't know that I would have necessarily gone that route if I were them. I mean, ultimately, I think they made the right call with that one.
1: All right, let's talk about Pulp Fiction now.
0: Yeah, let's talk. I when have you? When was the last time you've seen Pulp Fiction?
1: I'm gonna say three or four years ago.
0: Okay, yeah. I after we after we locked down this record, I actually rewatched it for the first time in. I don't know if it's probably a little bit longer than three or four years, but it was it it's it was a good number of years and i it's one of those movies where I just sit back and I just enjoy every second of that movie it's It's still my favorite Tarantino movie. I agree with that, yeah, I mean, I go back and forth between that and Jackie Brown admittedly. Um, I, cause I adore Jackie Brown. It's just such, I love the rhythms of the way scenes play out in that movie. The performances are so good. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, Jackie Pulp Fiction is one that I just really thoroughly enjoy.
1: Well, here's the interesting thing about what they did with the screenplay nominations, right? Yeah. So here's what yeah. I think happened, right? Obviously, Pulp Fiction was very popular among It was an indie darling, and a lot of people wanted to see it win Best Oscar or the Best Film, right? Yeah. Good? Okay. But it's also not really, I mean, if you look at what happens, it's not really, there's not really much that happens as far as actual stuff. It's it's typical of Tarantino where it's a lot of dialogue, you know? Yeah. So I think that the Academy satiated itself by saying, well, we're not going to give this best picture, but we're going to give it best screenplay for Written directly to the screen.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it's a writer's award, and this is, that's really a writer's movie. It's Tarantino. You know, when I've seen an interview with Tarantino, you can she, she can hear those words pouring out of his mouth from every character in that movie. Yeah. But they also got to satiate themselves with Forrest Gump because Forrest Gump was based on a book. Yeah. So they got to give that the other writing award. Mm-hmm. So they, they pretty finally found itself in a no lose situation that way. Yeah. Um, so, Pulp Fiction was great because it was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this thing, first off, I had to watch it twice. Back in the day, I was living in, uh, a central, was I do was somewhere. Anyway, my landlord had an illegal cable box, so that was when they used to do pay-per-view movies, and you'd have one channel, you know, one, the movie over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, I watched Pulp Fiction, and I'm like, wait a second... How is how is he? How is John Travolta dead? But he's back. <laughs> I, I had to rewatch it. I went right back as soon as the replay started. I'm like, I have to watch the scene. I did not know what's going on yet. Yeah. So I didn't realize at that first point that it's not it's not telling it straight time. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting technique that Tarantino used to attack, you know, use it, pull things out and show things out of a time stick. So why do you think You went with
0: that? I'm sorry. Why do you think he did that? with the time I, structure. So I think he probably, I think part of the reason he probably does in there is it's, it, the film is more, I almost feel like the movie is more driven by the momentum of the dialogue than I do sure. the action and the scenes. So that the dialogue really plays it. And you know, to a certain extent, the narrative plays out in, in a way you do have sort of a three act structure in terms of conflict and resolution and all of that. But the way it plays out is very sly because of the fact that each scene, with the exception of the very beginning with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, each each story basically has the A B and C structure. Um. And I like the fact that you, when you double back and get to Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer later in the movie, when you see them in the diner, it's like, oh, okay. And I love the fact, and I think he does it to set up little surprises throughout the movie because of the fact that you first see Bruce Willis talking to uh, Marcellus Wallace in the scene where Uma Thurman is being is taken out by Vincent Vega and yes. then you have which is set up by the dialogue before they get the briefcase which is and so you have those aspects then you have the scene with Butch where Butch you know Bush, Butch basically rigs the fight for himself to win even though he's supposed to lose. And then you have the scene where Uma Thurman is like, oh, I never thanked you for dinner. And so they've already had that dinner. There's a momentum to the dialogue and the way that the dialogue flows. And the narrative flows that doesn't necessarily require it to be in order. And I think anytime somebody does a really good job with that sort of fractured narrative, I think I think that's that's what they're focusing on more than, oh, we need to have this, this scene needs, this is the chronological part of it, so it needs to fall into this. That's not the case at all. Sure.
1: Well, so, do you want to get into some of the minutiae on this? Let me ask you this. What's your favorite out of the storylines?
0: I, I would say it's probably uh I I would say it's probably the cleanup of the car that that last, <laughs> that last scene where Marvin is, where Travolta sh- Vincent Vega shoots Marvin in the face and the cleanup there I I think that's always been my favorite next up is probably Christopher Watkins monologue about the watch
1: oh my god I forgot about that <laughs> That's right. You've got to go back for the watch, and that sets everything in play there.
0: <laughs> what about you? What would you say?
1: I love the segment with Bush, and I love it because so much weird shit happens there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Marcellus seasoned in the first off, he almost runs Marcellus down by chance. Yeah. Then they get in a gunfight and it's the greatest case of collateral damage I've ever seen in film because I think Marcellus goes to shoot him, but he misses yes. and hits some lady, some random lady in the leg.
0: Yes. And
1: she falls out and starts screaming. She's just been shot. Yeah. <laughs> so then obviously the whole thing with the GIMP and those those thick hillbillies turns into a whole different direction. Yeah. Um, and I find it fascinating that Bruce Willis basically, you know, you see Marcellus is getting raped. Bruce Willis is going to get raped next. Bruce Willis manages to cut himself out, butch manages to cut himself out, get out of that situation. And then he's going to leave. And then he has a crisis of conscience. And I think that's great. I think he says to himself, Oh my God, I can't, even though this guy's going to make tell me if I come back, I can't leave him like that. Because I was wet. That's what was about to happen to me. (laughs) And then one of the greatest scenes in all of film is when he's trying to choose his weapon. And he's looking at all the different weapons and he grabs the sword. I think that's amazing stuff there.
0: Yeah. No.
1: And it's got this. It's got this... It's sick because it's it's really funny, a lot of it. But it's funny you know, because you're watching some really sick shit and it's really funny, sick stuff that you're watching.
0: Well, it, it comes down to tone, and that's the thing that Tarantino absolutely nails in that movie because if it were darker, it would be unwatchable. Like If oh, it absolutely. was completely straight for serious effect, the scene of... Marcellus Wallace getting raped would be unwatchable. It would be hard to take. Similarly, the scene where Marvin is, Marvin's has blown off. If that scene is, because you see, and the way, the way Tarantino stages it, he's got Travolta in, a, it's a straight on shot in the camera. Travolta's looking at the camera. His gun is pointed right in the back seat, so you basically know what's going to happen. Yeah. So if you don't figure out what exactly is going to happen from that, it's like, yeah. And so he's setting it up, he's winding up, and basically the payoff. And one of the things that I, one of the things that was great, uh, Roger Ebert wrote a great movie's review of the movie that points out, that makes a really great point that ties into all this, during the adrenaline shot scene like that scene is legitimately shocking when it happens but when you watch it you it you can't help but laugh oh As absolutely and the reason is because you don't actually see the needle go into Uma Thurman it's cut in a way you see what's going to happen you see the aftermath you don't see the needle go in so that shock turns to laughter and I think that's one of the things yes. that Tarantino absolutely nails in that movie
1: oh absolutely and
0: I think he does a great job you know
1: I go back and forth on on, on Tarantino I think that a lot of his films are way too talky and you know it's just like sometimes i like some stuff to happen and he seems obsessed with certain issues but yeah. as far as Pulp Fiction goes I don't think he you know I mean that was that was his coming out party. You know, he'd done um he mm-hmm. he'd done Reservoir of War Dogs before that. Which was a light movie, but not, not exactly, you know, anything that was gonna make anybody famous, but you know, that was and again that was also John one of many of John Travolta's comeback films. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, I mean all
1: of a sudden John all of a sudden John Travolta was a big name again because of the Fitch. You know, he's back on those same guys.
0: Yeah, and the thing that's and the thing that's great yeah. about um Pulp Fiction and the way it uses the characters is that in the way it uses the actors is that it essentially it's essentially Tarantino writing to these actors' strengths. Like Travolta is not necessarily an actor who can project tremendous depth, but he's also but he is someone who is sincere, can be sincere and genuine and also very funny in the sure. way he acts, the way he reacts. And the scenes at the... One of my one of my favorite scenes, I've never forgotten this live dialogue from this movie, is when uh, when during the holdup at the end with Tim Roth and Ma- Amanda Plummer, uh, Jules has uh, Tim Roth in the uh in the booth with him Amanda Plummer basically has their her gun on Jules and then Vincent comes out of the bathroom and he, she has he has his gun on uh honey bunny on Amanda Plummer's character and at one point uh and he t- and Jules tells uh Tim Roth to get his wallet out and he's going to give him the money from the wallet and, Ju- and Vincent says, Jules, you give that piece of shit $1,500. I don't remember exactly what it is. I will shoot him on general principle. And that <laughs> line delivery, I've never forgotten that line delivery. And also the way Jules says, Vince, shut the fuck up. I have this situation under control. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the thing that's so great is the way that the, the dynamic between Jules and Vincent changes throughout the film. And you have the scene with the foot massages, talking about Amsterdam, all of that, in the beginning. That's, that's great. Then the...
1: The Royale with cheese.
0: Yeah, the Royale with cheese. And then you have yep. the scene where they're in front about the foot massages and you have this philosophical discussion about how intimate or not intimate a foot massage is and they get into an argument with that but it's, it's not a really heavy argument it's more it's defining their characters but it's also essentially just sort of them busting each other's balls to a certain extent yeah in, absolutely in serious when they go into the apartment and get the briefcase and you see another part of that dynamic where Jules, Vincent is playing off of Jules, and then you have, when that's, when they come back after the Butch sequence, you you basically see another level of that where it's like, Jules has had this spiritual experience, and Vincent is like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? It just happened. It's not an it's not an act of God. It's not a miracle or anything like that. But there's no getting around it. And then, and then one of my other favorite scenes in the movie is the cleanup, where it's like Jules just has this moment where it's like, "Why am I in the back cleaning up this guy's skull? You should be back there. You shot him. Clean this up yourself." And he's so exasperated with Vincent. It's like you get this whole dynamic between these characters and how it evolves in 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 brief interludes and it's such a brilliant piece of writing and going back to the butch scenes the butch sequence the scenes with his, him and his girlfriend are fantastic because you see yeah. that there's genuine affection and he but and he just viably loses his shit when she, he realizes she's for his watch but then she's but then he's like that's okay that's all right I will don't don't worry about it it's not your fault <laughs> and then the next thing we see he's yelling in the car about it yeah he's screaming in the car that's really funny. <laughs> And I mean, just the way that Tarantino builds these relationships, the way he builds the characters, is such an is so entertaining. It's like there really isn't, you know, we you were talking about passive versus active protagonists earlier. When it comes to Forrest Gump, it's hard to think of a character in this movie that isn't in some way active. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, you don't think there's really a character in this movie that's really passive. Not one of the major characters, at least.
1: No. And that's great, because, you know, one of the things that you got to say about Pulp Fiction is it's dynamic. Yeah, There's always stuff going on, it's moving, and it's moving in ways you wouldn't think at first, until you realize that it's not, you know, structured, you know, like you said, it's a fractured timeline but it's it's constantly moving, and you're kind of wondering how it's moving sometimes because some of this doesn't seem to make sense, yeah. but then at the end, you know it all ties up together that there's a whole group of people that you would think are some of the mycelonted characters or whatnot, but they all are part of this melange that becomes this amazing story, you know
0: and it's funny to consider that like this two and a half hour movie essentially takes. Over the timeline is essentially over the course of a couple of days, because I mean, yeah. you don't know how long it is between, uh, you know, the scene with Butch and Marcellus where he's telling him to throw the fight in the actual fight, but it's still close enough to that timeline to the fight is still close enough to that timeline to where, um, Uma Thurman Mia tells. Vincent, oh, I never thanked you for dinner, the other night. So it's like it's it's obvious that it happens within a very close time frame, and yeah, I mean that's and I you are right as far as the screenplay nomination, the screenplay win. I mean it was very obviously the consolation prize for Pulp Fiction, because oh yeah, we're not going to give it best picture. We can't give it best picture. It's way too it's way too intense for that.
1: Um, well, I mean, it's the same thing a couple of years ago with Get Out, right? So I wasn't crazy. What was it? Lady in the Water one Best Picture, I think it
0: was. Shape of water.
1: No, wait. We, water. There you go. I right? I love Guillermo del Toro, but I was not fascinated for the most part of it at all. It was kind of boring. But the thing is that, okay, so they're going to go outside your normal stuff and the realms are fantastic. But... So, you can't, have, I'm sure the Academy said to itself, well, Get Out is this phenomenal movie, but we can't really give an Oscar to something where, you know, people are doing brain swaps, you know? But, but we can give the best script to that, to nominate, you know, to say, hey, here's your, here's your consolation prize, like you put, it, you know? Yeah. Saying, hey, listen, here's, here's to say that we're recognizing you, but we're not recognizing you for the top prize because, goes way outside of what we would normally do. You know? Right. And I think that's the same thing that happened with, like I said, the screenplays for um for Pulp Fitch in there. Where, you know, like you said, that that movie is way too out there to be the kind of thing that the you know well, the Academy, which is known for the, you know, sort of stuff like the English patient and Gandhi, you know, you can go as far as Gump and you can you can take that and you make the best picture, but you know, can't go too far outside that, so they can get the scripts nomination. and like I said they got to eat the they can not have it too because they got to give Flores comp the ones for you know based on outside material so mm-hmm. yeah, So they got to win both ways
0: so yeah, and i mean that that's because that was something that definitely happened uh the previous couple of years with uh, the piano and crying game also winning the screenplay awards, but it's like, sure. oh yeah, we're not going to give it best picture, even though you know we we recognize that they're significant films. But it's like, yeah, we're not going to give it best picture, and I to a certain extent, they've sort of they've sort of gotten away from that um, way of thinking in a way, but they also kind of haven't. It's really kind of interesting to see in the past 25, 30 years the way that the Oscars have sort of gone in different directions as far as how they award certain films versus other movies. And, I mean, that was definitely one of those cases get out a couple of years ago was definitely that case. I was just looking up what one adapted that year because, obviously, Shape of War was original and was Call Me By Your Name which, you know, wouldn't have been my choice from that uh, category, but, I mean, it's still, I kind of understand what they were going with because, I mean, it was a Best Picture nominee. It was, you know, a way of honoring that film where they weren't necessarily going to honor it any other way. Um, And then, I mean, last year you had uh, Spike Lee winning the uh, adapted Oscar... And then you had uh, compared to Romo wing best director and um, Green Book wing best picture. I'm trying to look. Did Green Book. Yeah, I think Green Book won screenplay too, which. I think it did. Yeah, it did, which. Uh, not, not a fan of that, but. I mean, but at the same time, it's sort of going back to the same thing that we're talking about with Pulp Fiction uh, Force Gump, where it's like, oh, we can nominate one here because of the fact that it's original versus one here, which is adapted. And then, you know, last year they gave Green Book Best Picture, but they gave uh, Alfonso Caron Best Director, and that was their way of honoring Roma in one of the major categories. So yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like it's always kind of interesting to see where where and to try to theorize why the academy goes in the directions that it goes with certain years and certain uh, choices.
1: Sure, yeah. and unfortunately for 1999, neither End of Days or carry Two were nominated for anything, I'm pretty sure.
0: That's and and that's that that's actually that that's not a terrible thing. Um, that that year was a fascinating year for the Oscars, though. I mean, and it's funny because of the fact that um, it it's funny because of the fact. that I mean, obviously that was another year where it's like American Beauty. It it was the clear winner in you know Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay, and then the adapted screenplay was Sire House rules. And it's funny because of the fact that it's like I that was one of those. There were a couple of years there where it was there was this rivalry between DreamWorks and uh, Miramax that sort of came up. Oh
1: yeah, I remember that.
0: Because of the previous year, where Saving Private Ryan didn't win Best Picture, but Shakespeare and Love did, and uh, but yeah, the 1999, the year the Oscars for the 1999 movie year, like there were. Like they could have gone in so many different directions. I mean, ultimately they made some solid choices. There were some really good choices that year, but I mean, you know, there were still some good ones that they could have probably gone with instead.
1: I loved American Beauty back when I saw it in the theater in nineteen ninety
0: nine. Oh, I did. Too.
1: I watched it a couple. I watched it a couple years ago, and I don't think it holds up very well now. It's just it's a really weird. I mean, that's all. Topic for a whole different discussion, but um, it just—it's it, a very weird film. It's got a very weird kind of—I um, can't even get into it right now. Never mind. Yeah.
0: But I mean, well, yeah, and I mean, I really liked American Beauty too. I mean, if you'd asked me in nineteen in two thousand which of one best picture, I would have said that. Um, but at the same time looking at it now like I would I would have completely gone with Richard Farnsworth for best actor for the straight story. He was he was absolutely amazing in that movie. And yes. Tom Cruise won for Magnolia. Like that was a really good year. That was a really good it was a really good category, but Tom Cruise won for Magnolia. And I'm not even the biggest fan of Magnolia, but I I he was phenomenal in that movie
1: yeah i agree and i don't even like conclusive most part but yeah he was really and again you want to talk about another weird film like no he is a weird film
0: oh yeah it really is it yeah i mean and and the thing is it's like it it took me it took me a few movies to warm up to uh paul thomas anderson but um you know I, I've since, you know, come to, I've rewatched Boogie Nights and uh, American, and uh, Magnolia, which I was not really a fan of either one when I first saw it, but I, I you know, I appreciate them a bit more now. Uh, you know, I, I still have issues with them, but overall, I, I, I enjoy them as movies.
1: Now, let me ask you a question. When the Academy when the Awards came on in 1995, did you watch them?
0: Yes, I did. That was that was like my second year of really sort of following the awards season. Um, so yeah, I did watch the Oscars that year
1: because I managed to re. I pulled up nineteen ninety five Academy Awards on my phone. I was out for lunch earlier with my sister. And I was you know on a little prep for this because I don't like to go into anything on prep. And then I was reading an interview with. I did not realize that that was the year that
0: David Letterman hosted. Yeah. yeah, and I was trying to remember who, who, uh, who did host that one, and then yeah, it was, when I brought it up, it's like, oh yeah, that was the David Letterman one. I forgot. And that was
1: the one where he was making the Oprah and Uma jokes. Yeah. Apparently, throughout the entire opening monologue, and it fell flat. And basically, he was talking about how. <laughs> He had something written, right? It, this is really interesting. He had something written. And then the producers came to him at like the last minute. They said, well, we have this little writers, whatever. I think it was writers from the show, too. But we have this bit, if you want to add this in, about about names. Because, you know, Oprah's not an everyday name. Uma's not an everyday name. Keanu Reeves is here. Keanu's not an everyday name. Yeah. And apparently he mentioned that, and it fell flat. And then I... I I, I remember him looking like he was dying on stage. But yeah, he went through this whole thing where he kept going back to it, and basically he was talking about how everything was fine. He took a plane from California to New York and had to be in London for something the next day, and then what he said when he got to the airport in New York, he saw all these terrible head run lines and realized how trashed he was getting because of his hosting skills. Yeah, So... I mean, he's going with this whole no host thing. Last, I guess, I guess they did that last year, and they're going with it again this year. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if that really works or not. I should, have, I think you should have an MC for any kind of show like that. Uh, but certainly, picking the right MC is super important because. Yeah. David Letterman was really good at what David Letterman did, but he's way outside his element with something like that, and I just remember that being, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe poor Davey, you <laughs> know?
0: Mm. Oh no, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I remember him, because I mean, I was, I, I was a Letterman fan, and it's, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember watching him and just sort of realizing that, yeah, he was not doing a good job. But I mean, I'm trying to think of like the first time I really felt like somebody kind of blew me away as a host for the Oscars. I mean, I didn't really because I mean, once once the monologue, once the opening happens, it's like they sort of go away to a certain extent and they come up every once in a while. So um, I do want to bring up uh, with regards to that Oscar year, the uh, the music um, which basically was swept by The Lion King. Hans number one for scorn Can you feel the love tonight? One for song. Um, I I kind of wanted to bring it up because a I will say Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction both have fantastic soundtracks. Uh, oh yes, absolutely. Pulp Fiction doesn't have a score, but I do really like Alan Silvestri's score for. Forrest Gump. I think it's a very good one. It's one of the better ones he's done for Zemeckis over the years. Um, And this was, this was the next, it was funny because the next year when they did the Oscars, they decided to split up the score into drama and then comedy and musical for a few years. Do you remember that? Yeah, I
1: always thought that was really
0: weird. Well, it was, I So the reason I always understood was it was basically because three of the last four years, Disney had swept, because that was with... Well, yeah, that was
1: when Disney, but that was when Disney was yeah. from from the Little Mermaid up through, I guess, I guess the last one they did in that style was... Um, Lion King was the... Well, no, but I'm saying the last time that they really did oh. a movie in that type of style was, I think, uh, it might have been Tarzan, around that. But they were basically taking, if you look at it, kind of, it's not surprising that all those shows, all those movies get turned into the Broadway plays, because those are basically Broadway plays as cartoons. Yeah. They're big show tunes, they're big, you know, that type of stuff. So, yeah. but Disney, yeah, you couldn't help but give Disney those awards. And how funny is it that Lion King, Pulp Fiction, and Forrest all came out the same year as Four Weddings and a Funeral.
0: Oh, I know. Yeah.
1: What a very first year for film, huh?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's part of why it was such a formative year for me when it came to film is because of how diverse it was. And it's funny because I, I actually did not see The Lion King in theaters. I was not really interested in Disney at the time. So I didn't really, like, I, I didn't really, it didn't really matter to me if I went to go see those in theaters. So I, I didn't see Lion King until a few years later. But, I mean, that year you had Pulp Fiction, you had Ed Wood, you had Forrest Gump, uh, Quiz Show, Shawshank, Four Wings and Funeral. We've already talked about all of those. Um, the Crow came out that year. Um, oh, that's
1: right. The Crow came one of my out. favorite
0: movies. Um, which I would have loved to have seen that got nominated for its music because there were some fantastic songs, and I love that score. Uh, Hoop Dreams came out that year, and I remember that being one of the big uh storylines of that Oscars because Hoop Dreams did not get nominated for documentary. And here, which is insane, yeah, because it's one of the best documentaries ever. And they basically the changed the and I think they they changed the rules for documentary nominating at that point where it's like you basically had to watch the movies that had sort of been shortlisted, I think. But we had Bullets over Broadway, which we've already talked about, but Interview with the Vampire was one where that actually got a few Oscar nominations, which, you know, was Pretty deserving. I really... I still continue to enjoy that movie. Uh, Speed won a couple of technical awards, and that came out that year. Clerks came out that year. Uh, the Professional came out that year. Um, there, were, there were some really great year movies in 1994, and one of the other movies that was actually in the original screenplay category with Pulp Fiction that... I kind of wish, in retrospect, now that I had seen it, got more love was Heavenly Creatures, the Peter Jackson film. Sure. That actually got a screenplay nomination, but it really should have gotten probably more. And I feel like if it would come out nowadays, it probably would have. It would have been more of a player than it was. But, um yeah. So it was it was a pretty diverse year and it's one that is definitely it's one that's definitely stayed with me even beyond as especially as I've gotten more and more into uh movies that came out that year over the years.
1: And then on the horror front because I have to <laughs> basically um and if we ever if you ever decide to do a nineteen ninety four retrospective for a full year, I have some decent horror movies we can talk about. Uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare came out that year. In the Mouth of Madness came out. That's John Carpenter. Yep. I saw both of those. in see, it is Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. A really interesting werewolf movie. Mm-hmm. I went on a date to see Mary Shelley Frankenstein, and that was a horror show, not because of the date, but because of the movie. <laughs> that is a bad, bad horror
0: movie. I, I am not. Seen Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I, I've always been kind of curious, but I, I've i never brought myself to watch it.
1: So here's the thing <laughs> I love Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh, however, because he's a stage actor, tends to play to the back of the stage on film a lot. So he does a lot of yelling and screaming and handing it up in that movie. Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, that's one. Of that's actually, it's my one of my favorite novels of all time. And no, that movie is not one of my favorite movies of all time, surprisingly. But no, going so it. I think that wolf, no, guys, I'm sorry.
0: Wolf is one that I definitely kind of want to revisit because I I liked it at the time, and I haven't seen it since theaters. So which one? I'm kind wolf. The Jack. Oh,
1: Wolf! Yeah. Um, you should definitely give that a look. Yeah.
0: I definitely want to. I definitely want to give it a revisit because I, I have, I, I love New Nightmares. One of my favorite uh, movies of Wes's, and, um, In the Mouth of Madness is one of my favorite Carpenter films. I really enjoyed that one. I rewatched it uh, this past October, and I, I, I'm so fascinated by that movie. It's such a fun movie.
1: So yeah, that was where horror was at that year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, when we're, we're not really when I really talking about horror here, I get to be all fancy and for a change yeah. and for Oscars, <laughs> <dude. laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean,
0: and and it was a it was a good discussion. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like there you can only talk about the Oscars for so long without with without like your eyes just kind of glazing over. Especially in retrospective, even though it is kind of interesting to look at in uh, retrospect to see sort of like what got nominated and what people, what the Academy thought was important that year. It's like, I feel like if 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 the Academy read like ever redid nominees for that year, I think it would be considerably different, especially in the acting categories, because there's just. There's a lot that I feel like, like I Tom and Viv, I've never even, I don't even remember that movie. I don't even remember it then, but it's like, okay, Madness of King George, it's like I've heard good things about it. I'll watch it some point, maybe. But um, yeah, it's those two movies and then like, but yeah, that best actress category, it's like, I'm sure Jessica Lange was fantastic in Blue Sky, but... Like the rest of that category was so felt so weak, and it's it's weird to see how certain years play out as far as the Academy Awards compared to uh, other years.
1: Well, nineteen ninety five Academy Awards were certainly fascinating. I mean, again, the fact that we can generate an hour's worth conversation just between Forrest Gump and. Um, and Paul Fitching says about as much as we can say, no?
0: No, I would agree with that. And uh yeah, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I'm always uh, I'm always very flattered and honored when you ask me to be on one of these. And uh like I said, if you decide to do an Atari nineteen ninety four retrospective year, I'm in for a couple movies now on our so we're yeah, all good.
0: I, I, I could I might I might consider doing that in a few years when it turn when that year turns thirty, but uh, we'll yeah, see. sure. We'll see, um, but yeah, and uh, but yeah, thank you for joining me in this discussion, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the horror movies we will be discussing later this year.
1: Sounds good, my friend.
0: I'd like to thank Phil Fasso for joining me tonight. Uh, that is going to be it for the first podcast of 2020 for the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Hit me up on Patreon, patreon.com backslash Sonic I will have my favorite scores of 2019 run down uh, shortly, as well as some more Oscar talk and I have a lot more coming up there. That's gonna be really exciting. I'm looking forward to the discussions I have, and the uh, pieces, of interest in writing for patrons. Uh, check out, continue to check out www. I'm uh, really excited about where the podcast the websites going this year i will be hopefully covering the atlanta film festival yet again i will be covering the women in horror uh film festival at the end of february so be on the lookout for that and that will be it thank you very much for joining me at www.sonicdassima.com <laughs>